This is I Spy, a show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. All right. Uh, my name is Jack Barsky. I came here in 1978 on behalf of the KGB as a undercover sleeper illegal agent. And then 10 years later, I decided to stay here. And another, like, 15 years, I became an American citizen. So that's my background. From Foreign Policy, welcome to I Spy, real-life spy stories told by the people who were there. Each week, we feature one former intelligence operative from somewhere around the world describing one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. On today's show... Albrecht Dietrich, a.k.a. Jack Barsky, who was born in East Germany, recruited by the KGB, and sent to the United States to influence American policymaking. Barsky began his mission to the U.S. in 1978, at an especially fraught period of the Cold War. Within a short time, the Soviets would invade Afghanistan, the U.S. would boycott the Summer Olympics in Moscow, and Americans would elect the staunch anti-communist Ronald Reagan as president. Barsky was one of hundreds of sleeper agents the Soviets planted in the United States over the years. His story begins at the University of Vienna in East Germany, where Barsky was a college student. I'm sitting in my dorm room, I was a third-year student of chemistry, and it was on a Saturday. I was doing some homework, uh, ready to, you know, finish it up and eventually have my night of carousing and drinking and all that. And there's a, there's a knock on the door, and I said, oh, come on in. So in come this short little guy who quickly introduced himself as a representative of the big company in town called Zeiss Jena, which still exists today. It's one of the, uh, one of the best optics company in the world. And in those days, it was split. It had, half of it was in East Germany, the other half was in the West. So he said, you know, I'm from that company, and, and I would like to talk with you about what you would want to do after you graduate. <clears throat> that was one heck of a stupid story because in those days, no company ever recruited in, in college, university. You were assigned to your next job or if you were in the top 5%, you could pick. But, but companies just didn't come. So his cover story was idiotic. So I knew right away that something is up here. He is not from Carl Zeiss Jena. He's not from this company. He is most likely uh, East German intelligence because he was German. And then we talked a little this, about 15 minutes, and it was like blah, blah, blah. I already knew sort of what he was after. He didn't know that I knew. And after those 15, 20 minutes, however long it took, he he changed his tune. He said, you know, I'm not really from Kotzeis, you know, I'm with the government. Could you possibly imagine uh, to work for the government in the future? 
I saw nobody was asking, so I said, uh, yeah, but not as a chemist. Bingo. It, we were communicating sort of between the lines. I know what he was asking for, and he had the right answer. So he, he said, okay, that's wonderful. Uh, we should meet again. And then we met again uh, a week later in the best restaurant in town where uh, a steak with french fries cost five marks, which was a lot of money. And so he invited me to have a sort of a, it was like a mid, mid-afternoon dinner. Uh, and uh, this was great, man. I'm going to get a free meal in the best restaurant in town. So I'm walking in there, and I, I see another person next to this guy, blonde, taller. And so I didn't know, can I approach him? So my uh, recruiter got up and says, come, come on, it's okay. He introduces the other fellow. He says, this is Herman. And by the way, we're, work- we're working with our Soviet friends. Bingo. I knew it was KGB. In the meantime, you know, we ate the meal. We talked a little bit about this, that, and the other. Nothing special. And then the fellow who, uh, you know, first got in touch with me at the dorm excused himself and say, okay, you guys, you know, you just like... And from then on, I worked with a KGB guy. The word KGB was probably never even stated. It was clear. And not only that, it was clear that I was not recruited to be an informer on, you know, internal enemies of the state. I was recruited to do espionage in the West, and that was very intriguing. The way this was displayed was, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can be a fighter for communism and enjoy the privilege of a reasonably wealthy capitalist. Hello, on top of it, immediately you get elevated to a very, very special sort of people. And uh, that, that was intriguing on top of it. You know, just the, the whole idea that somebody comes to you and says, hey, we think you're really good enough to do this. So I was flattered. I, uh, my, my ego uh, went through the roof, and on top of it, I knew I would be able to travel to the West. Well, so um, I moved to Berlin. That's where my training started. Once I got into this training, my cover story was that I was working for the State Department of East Germany. Uh, But obviously, you don't go to work every day. You don't meet a lot of people every day. Uh, And everyone you do meet, you have to lie to. So I I didn't have a lot of, you know, interaction that I had while I was still a student at the university. And so it was quite lonely. But the whole idea of where I was going carried me a long way. I had no problem lying to my mother. I I had no problem lying to my brother. I had no problem lying to anybody I met. I knew I was going to be somebody very special, and I knew that I was going to do great things. My goodness, when you're 
22, 23 years old, there's nothing else that, that, that could motivate you any more, particularly if you're wired the way I was. Um, there wasn't a lot of emotions in me. It was all about success. It was all about doing better. It was all about pleasing my parents, even though they were not physically present. I was always wired to do better than the rest of them. So I left for Moscow to do more preparation for my <coughs> travel to the United States. And uh, this was the loneliest two years I ever spent. Uh, those two years, the only human interaction I had was with the folks that trained me uh, because I wasn't supposed to mingle with the Russians. I, I didn't speak much Russian. I had enough of a vocabulary to get around and buy food and go to a restaurant and, and find my way around town, but it was lonely. Um, discipline and the knowledge that you're doing something for a particular good cause can make you uh, really suffer without suffering. Make you uh, into somebody you are not for a while. That doesn't mean that you're comfortable, but it wasn't that bad. Because I studied, I, I listened to uh, BBC at night. <laughs> They, they gave me, uh, you know, things to, to read in English. I, I, I got a lot of, uh, a lot more training, really, really good training in, in, in the tradecraft. You know, thinking back, it's kind of odd that I didn't even miss female companionship. There, there, there's something in this head of mine, in this brain of mine, that just is so able to just adjust. You know, the Russians uh, asked me just before I left whether uh, I would want to have a sight contact. A sight contact is like when you go someplace at a predetermined time and then see somebody that you already know to give you a, a, a connection. Apparently, this was one of the things that uh, uh, they typically offer to people to, to, to uh, retain that connection with home. And I said, I don't need it, and I, I never did. But honestly, I don't understand me. I'm a loving person, and I can be really, really, really cold. You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to I Spy. This is Margot Martindale. So, the KGB has trained Barsky for several years, first in Berlin and then in Moscow. He's taught about cryptography and secret writing, dead drops and surveillance detections. He's also trained to lose his German accent, though it doesn't go away entirely. Eventually, Barsky's handlers give him a fake passport, a Canadian one, and send him off to the United States. He picks up the story from here. The most uh, 
intense uh, 20 minutes of my entire life was um, standing in line to be processed by immigration and then going on to customs because, you know, I was entering the United States with what I knew was a, a fake passport. The passport was in the name of uh, William Dyson. William Dyson was a Canadian citizen um, living in Toronto, and for some reason, the KGB folks who arranged my <coughs> travel to the United States figured I should get a flight out of Mexico City to Toronto with a stopover in Chicago and deep plane in Chicago. So I stood there in line, and my goodness, I thought KGB was written on my forehead. Of course it wasn't. Uh, the uh, immigration just looked at the passport and said, oh, so what are you going to do here? I said, I just want to take, take a look at Chicago and then go home. No problem. And then, interestingly enough, customs went through my suitcase, and my goodness, that suitcase wasn't even full. And one of the things that was in there was a shortwave radio. Now, this was not special edition KGB, and you you could buy it, but nevertheless, you know, I just had come from Mexico City, and I didn't have, like, um, you know, a bathing suit, uh, sun lotion. I, I had nothing that a, a traveler to, to Mexico might have, but I did have a shortwave radio. Well, they didn't pick up on that, so I'm leaving, I'm out. The first thing I did, uh, as I'm rounding the corner, I'm, I'm past uh, both control points, I smoked a cigarette. And then I took a deep breath and said, what now? Uh, I went uh, into the arrival hall, and I was looking for a hotel. I had no idea where to go, so I just like randomly picked something and uh, wrote down the phone number and the address, and then I got into a cab, and I told the uh, cab driver the address. And he looked at me like, huh? I had no idea what that meant. Uh, I sort of had a clue when I got there. The hotel was sort of a rundown old building, and I, I entered the lobby, and uh, the reception desk was protected by plexiglass. All right. What do I know? That may well be standard, because I'd never been in a hotel in the United States. I did prepay for two nights. The idea was to, like, uh, you know, spend the night, uh, explore the neighborhood, and the next night uh, become Jack Barsky and get rid of the Dyson ID. I get to my room. In order to watch television, you had to put a quarter in, and that gave you uh, about a half hour worth of TV. I drank myself to sleep. Uh, I had bought a uh, bottle of uh, Johnny Walker Red, and that a half a bottle of Johnny Walker Red that's a lot of Johnny Walker Red. Woke up with a headache and took uh, painkillers, which I had with me. Uh, and then I was figuring out 
how to get breakfast. So I stepped out of the hotel and I realized there was nobody out there who looked like me. They were all black. I was in the south side of Chicago. I didn't know it. I didn't know it until much later. But I knew that I didn't quite fit. And I figured to get out of there the first day, uh, I uh, destroyed the William Dyson passport and took the Jack Barsky birth certificate out of a secret hiding place and went north and registered at another hotel uh, about probably a mile and a half north of uh, where I had stayed uh, under Jack Barsky. The, the KGB modus operandi to uh, get people settled in another country under another, another name was to steal IDs. And the way they stole IDs was to look around in cemeteries for people who died at a young age and then somehow get some kind of a record, even that could be a church record or it could be a government record for that person. Now, in my case, uh, there was a uh, diplomat spy, a KGB employee who had diplomatic cover, uh, who wandered around in cemeteries. Uh, and, and in one of those cemeteries in uh, near Baltimore, he found the name of Jack Barsky and some other information that was necessary for him to get a death certificate for Jack Barsky. Jack Barsky was born in 1944 and he died in 1955. He got a death certificate and then parlayed that into a birth certificate. Kind of odd, isn't it? And that was okay. You could actually uh, based on that, you could acquire the documentation you need to become an American. The first year of me being in the U.S., I had almost no contact with with people, like social contacts, because I, I couldn't, right? Uh, and then I got my social security card, but I didn't know how fortunate that was, I became a messenger, okay? Uh, and I was a bike messenger, so I was hanging out with a bunch of uh, sort of marginal folks. Don't misunderstand that. Marginal doesn't mean that they're marginal individuals, but they were at the margins of society, not making a lot of money, and in and out of this job, and I was just sitting there waiting for my next delivery and absorb things. And I listened. And nobody really cared about asking me any questions because I was just one of those guys who is here today and gone tomorrow. And so I learned a lot for about a year and a half, a lot about what it means to be an American. I learned baseball. As a matter of fact, (laughs) I traveled back uh, to Moscow and then I came when I came back, the moment I had an opportunity, I inquired about, you know, what was going on in the World Series. The Yankees were in the World Series. I wanted to know. Right? So I eased into becoming an American. And within one year, and I very proudly sent back to Moscow a report that I am now dreaming in English. 
you know, I got away with my my residual accent because I explained that by having grown up bilingual with a German mother. My mother's maiden name was Schwartz, which is Jewish or could be German. It's German-Jewish. So when, when I eventually, uh, you know, got a steady girlfriend, she was from South America. She had no clue that there's something not quite American about me. When it comes to agent life, it is 95% totally boring and 5% high-tension action. And you got to be ready for that 5%. And primarily, most of that 5% had to do with me traveling back to Moscow and coming back into the United States because the, these trips were always uh, fraught with danger. I give you roughly sort of an idea what uh, my agent life was all about. I had a radio transmission, shortwave, once a week on a Thursday at 9.15 p.m. I was allowed to communicate back via secret writing about, uh, you know, once every three weeks. And uh, when I did that, I would walk around in the, in the city and try to see if I'm being followed before I would deposit the, the letter in, into a mailbox. Um, once a year, roughly, I was involved in a dead drop operation, which means uh, I hand something over or I get something, but not face-to-face, -face, but, you know, I made rocks. You know, you drop a rock that I made out of plaster of Paris and uh, you put something in there that you, in my case, it was uh, uh, undeveloped uh, film cartridges. And, and the other thing is just, like, wander around and look for people who might be of interest. But that's, that's not outside of the realm of what you do day to day. I was trained to do political espionage. In other words, to get close to decision makers or influencers in foreign policy. And, uh, you know, the idea was to get connected to uh, places like the Hudson Institute uh, the Trilateral Commission, I don't even know if they still exist, um, the Institute of Foreign Relations or whatever it's called at Columbia University, uh, because Zbigniew Bierzynski, uh was the head of that and he was the foreign policy advisor for President Carter. So that was the dream that they had. Well, the dream didn't work out very well because I didn't manage to obtain a passport, an American passport. The whole idea was that once I have a passport, I can travel abroad with that name and say, go to Switzerland. And at, and the, the KGB was going to then establish a company and funnel a ton of money into that company that I could then take to the United States and become a player. Player means, you know, 10 million or whatever. That was the Soviet Union. 10 million is no money. With 10 million, uh, you pretty much could have knocked on the door of any country club, and uh, obviously we would have uh, targeted one where you have government folks and become a member. Bingo. 
didn't work. I don't want to get too much into detail. We just made a mistake, uh, and I, I was not able to acquire the passport. So now the mission was a lot harder, but they figured that, you know, to have somebody behind enemy lines just in case things get really hot and all the diplomats get kicked out and there's no there's nobody there to, to do things on the other side was that important to them. But, you know, in terms of, um, you know, me stealing big-time secrets, I didn't have any. I met a lot of people. I profiled probably about 50 people, pretty intelligent people, most of, most of them with a college degree, who could have been re recruited, but they wouldn't tell me. I have no idea. And there could have been somebody who was recruited and did a lot of damage. I don't know. I wish not, but I, I can't give that answer. For the, the last two years, my mission was slightly changed. All of a sudden, they were looking to steal information technology stuff. So in other words, uh, I was introduced to somebody from a different department who said, you know, we're falling behind. We need technology. Whatever you have, whatever you can get your hands on, we would welcome if you can get it. What they did not understand, and and they know now very well, is the importance of data. I worked at MetLife in the health insurance department. I had access to the health records of about 15 million Americans. And some of those were employees of uh, companies that made airplanes, weapons, um, munitions, you name it. I mean, think about it. Uh, think, think about getting uh, the health record of the CEO uh, of a large company that makes weapons, and that guy has a prescription that indicates that they're a drug addict. Hello, blackmail. And I told my handlers that, and they didn't even for a moment think about the value of that information. There's a shelf life to somebody like me, because in order to be an effective agent, you need to be fully integrated in society. And the more you integrate, the more it becomes you. And it gets to a point where you could be flipped or you flip yourself. That's what happened when I had my daughter, Chelsea. She was born uh, in 1987 uh, on June 1st. I carried her home. I had married her mother, but we had an arrangement by which the apartment that we had, we shared, and I was on one side of the the apartment. She lived in another side. So I could still do the stuff that I was doing uh, as an agent, which is, uh, number one, uh, listening to shortwave radio, and number two, composing uh, letters with uh, secret writing. But I watched this child grow up, and I just completely fell in love. What a beautiful, wonderful, lovely child she was.
I think it was early December, when the Russians called me back, uh, by the way, for a reason that didn't exist. They were just nervous. He says, you you got to come home or else we think the FBI will get you. The KGB had required that I tell them my, my route to work, my standard route to work. And then we uh, agreed on a spot where they could put a signal that meant get out of here. There was no other interpretation. The dangerous signal meant go, retrieve. I had some uh, emergency documents, and a, a Canadian driver's license and a Canadian birth certificate that I had hidden someplace in a park way, way away from where I lived, and just run. And that was a red dot, and it was about the size of my fist. And one day, so I'm like half asleep, I'm going to the subway, it was like a 12-minute walk, and I'm out out of routine. I looked at that spot, which uh, was a a metal support beam for the elevated part of the A-train in New York. So I see this red dot, and I said, and I can't say this word, but it's an S word. (laughs) And uh, I just could not go because I hadn't, I just couldn't come up with a plan how to support this child, you know, to give her a good life. So this is where my tendency to not obey authority kicked in. I didn't do what what that spot told me to do. I got on the train, I went to work, I sat there in front of my computer terminal like a moron, I didn't get any work done. I was trying to figure out, my goodness, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? I played for time. And that was probably on a Monday. On a Thursday, I listened to their radio transmission and I deciphered uh, the message, and they, and it said pretty much, hey, listen, we have reason to believe that the FBI is uh, tracking you down. you got to come home quickly. Let's arrange for a dead drop operation so you can get money and a passport to get out of there. And then, then it said, please confirm uh, reception. I did not confirm. And so one day... I'm waiting for the train. It was probably about 6.30, 6.45. It was still dark outside, and this uh, short guy dressed in a a black coat sidles up to me and says, you got to come home or else you're dead. I did not, at the time, interpret this to be a death threat other than just like, you know, you're dead. You you know, your cover is blown. Now... Knowing the history of the KGB, the death threat was still a possibility. It couldn't have been discounted. But guess what? I got on the train. I went to work. At that point, I made the decision to stay. And I wrote them because it was clear that I couldn't play for time anymore. So I you know, wrote a letter in secret writing telling them that I can't come because I have HIV AIDS. That was 
the second biggest lie in my entire life, and it was very successful. They said, oh my God, we don't want this guy back in the Soviet Union or in East Germany. So they actually, they bought into this hook, line, and sinker. They, they went to my German family and told them that I died from AIDS. And they gave them some of the savings that I had. I didn't know that they would buy into this. I hoped they would. But, you know, I also knew that uh, they really did not deal with defectors very kindly. So for about three months, I made sure that I was unpredictable as to my time and location. So I would, I would go to work in different ways. I would go at different times I could because I had flex time. And after three months, nothing happened. The FBI wasn't knocking on my door. I just became a normal American citizen. Started looking about buying a house. Within about a year, I was in the suburbs. We had another child. And I became an American. <laughs> it was only Chelsea. With regard to the economics, my life at that time in East Germany would have been better than here. I would have come home as a hero uh, to also about $60,000 worth of savings, a fortune on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And on top of it, I was a well-trained agent. I was going to do some more traveling. I was going to be a courier. I was going to go all over the world because I was one of the best-trained agents that they ever had. There was nothing from my own personal, selfish view that said, don't go. The only thing that said, don't go, was Chelsea. There is no other explanation but what is called unconditional love. This is the biggest force in a person's life, I believe. My example is certainly not the only one. Ultimately, it's all about the LOV. We are here to love others. I've met some people who, who told me, I've always wanted to be one of those spy people. Number one, don't do it. Uh, number two, it doesn't. It is not worth it. Number three, even if you, even if you think you are serving a good cause, you may not really change the trajectory of uh, the world going forward. Uh, it will do tremendous damage to your psyche, which you will have a hard time dealing with. And I'm not just talking about myself. I have met about a handful of people who did something like me, where they had to pretend to be somebody else. We have one thing in common. We're suffering as human beings. It's not worth it. Do something good for your neighbor. Do something good for your family. Do something good for a whole bunch of people. Just don't pretend to be somebody you're not. Jack Varsky is a former KGB sleeper agent. He wrote a book about his experience called 
deep undercover, my secret life and tangled allegiances as a KGB spy in America. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor is Dan Efron. Rob Sachs and Amy McKinnon helped produce today's show. The interview with Barsky was conducted by Amy McKinnon. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us, ispy at foreignpolicy.com. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Foreign Policy subscribers can go to our website to hear bonus episodes of iSpy with additional excerpts and interviews. This week, we'll talk to the FBI agent who exposed Barsky. The two are now golfing buddies. If you're not a subscriber, go to foreignpolicy.com backslash subscribe for access to all of the magazine's great content. Next week on the show, Israeli Mossad operatives set out to assassinate a leader of the Palestinian group Hamas, but are forced to save his life instead. So what was developed very rapidly was some kind of poison that once it's being sprayed on somebody's skin, the person will uh, very shortly after that feel dizzy, will go to sleep and uh, will never wake up. That episode next week on I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. <laughs>